Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's podcast, When Extreme Necessity is the Mother of Invention. So we all know the proverb, necessity is the mother of invention. Now that proverb is overly simplistic, but it does get at something true. And one place you can see this really clearly is in global crises, which vividly illustrate the linkage between need and innovation. And you don't really need fancy statistical techniques to parse it out. So let's look at three examples. First crisis, the COVID-19 global pandemic. It's one we're all very familiar with. During 2020 to 2022, the big thing that we all suddenly needed was medical treatment for COVID-19. And a paper by Agarwal and Gale from 2021 looks at what happened to the number of new clinical trials for all diseases in the wake of that pandemic. And no surprises, the number of new clinical trials shot up as the magnitude of the disease became clear. And essentially, all of that increase came from trials related to COVID-19. And I should say, this week's podcast uh, loses a little bit because I sort of built this post around striking charts that show basically a line jumping up during some crisis. And this is one of those examples when there's a chart uh, bouncing along the number of new clinical trials every year, and then when COVID-19 hits, it just jumps. So in the end, these trials succeeded. We got a suite of effective vaccines in record time, and necessity was the mother of invention. But COVID-19 had other effects too. For one, it forced the world to embark on this unprecedented experiment in remote work. Bloom et al. 2021 is this short paper that looks at the share of patent applications filed in the USA that relate to remote work. Bloom and co-authors scan the text of patent applications for words related to remote work, such as work remotely, telework, video chat, many others. And again, we've got a figure that you can't see uh, that shows bouncing along the share of patents associated with uh, working remotely, and it's around half a percent, going from 2017 to 2020. And then suddenly in 2020, boom, it jumps up again and starts marching up into the right. Again, necessity was the mother of invention. Our second crisis is the oil price shocks of the 1970s. After a long period of relatively stable and predictable energy prices, the price of oil abruptly shot up due to disruptions to Middle Eastern supply in the 1970s. The energy crisis created this urgent need to pivot away from dependence on suddenly unreliable oil supplies. Now, you can already see kind of suggestive evidence that the U.S. economy managed to do just that when you look at a figure that comes from Hassler, Krusel, and Olofsson, which shows the share of GDP that is spent on energy and plots it against the price of energy in the USA. Because around 1985, the link between the share of GDP spent on energy and the price of energy seems to have changed. Uh, It seems like suddenly we were able to get by spending less of a share of GDP on energy. But it's still in the figure not 100% clear how the timing of that all played out, specifically How closely related to the oil shocks was that? To more precisely estimate the pace of innovation related to energy, Hassler, Krusel, and Olofsson 2021 uses some fairly basic economic modeling. They assume economic output is produced by labor and energy, and that technology comes in two flavors, one for each. If the technology for energy gets twice as good, it is if you've got twice as much energy to play with. You know, in fact, better technology has allowed you to use the energy twice as efficiently, but it's as if you've got twice the energy. Similarly for labor, uh, if you've got a labor technology that gets twice as good, it's as if you've got twice as much labor to work with to generate things like GDP. So the cool thing is that if you accept their pretty simple model 
you end up with a way to measure a concept like technology, which is normally so nebulous, with some very simple and readily available data. If you assume the economy uses labor and energy efficiently, you can do some math, move some things around, and then show that the productivity of the energy technology can be expressed as a function of GDP per capita, the share of spending on energy in the economy, and our ability to substitute labor for energy and vice versa. So when Hassler, Krusel, and Olofsson plug data into this equation, and then they have to make some sensible assumptions about how easy is it to substitute labor for energy and vice versa, and they're going to assume it's, it's pretty hard to do, well then you can get a figure that tracks our ability to convert energy into economic output. And for example, uh, it looks like a, a line that's moving along flat until 1970 when the oil shock hits, and then it starts marching up and to the right. Uh, and by the end, you know, one barrel of oil in 2020 is sort of like having three barrels of oil in 1950 because our technology can stretch it further. And so the figure makes it really clear. When the era of cheap energy ended, it shocked the productivity of energy technology out of its stagnation and into this new steady upward trend. Necessity was the mother of invention. And an aside, sometimes people argue technological progress slowed in the 1970s because we moved from technological progress that took abundant energy for granted to technological progress that didn't. Hassler, Krusel, and Olofsson's work is actually broadly supportive of that narrative. This is just three data points, so we can't get too excited, but there does seem to be this negative correlation between the pace of progress in technology that converts energy into output and technology that converts labor into output. In other words, when the oil shocks forced us to expend more effort on reducing demand on fossil fuels, that may have come at the expense of other forms of technological progress that we had kind of become accustomed to. Our last crisis is World War II. Now, we could point to many innovations born out of the exigencies of World War II, radar to defend against attack from the air, penicillin produced at industrial scale, and the Manhattan Project to develop the first atomic bomb. But let's focus on the need to build a lot of airplanes. When President Roosevelt targeted 50,000 planes over the entire war in 1940, that goal was viewed as just impossible by a lot of people. Contemporary economists Robert Nathan and Simon Kuznets believed the U.S. simply didn't even have the capacity, the productive capacity to, to achieve that. But in reality, the U.S. eventually succeeded in producing 100,000 planes in just one year. And in fact, during the war, there was a 1,600% increase in the number of aircraft produced, and the U.S. spending on aircraft alone reached 10% of 1939's GDP. Now, how did the U.S. manage to do this seemingly impossible task? Well, we've got another figure that you can't see that gives us some clues, and it's from the work of Ilzetsky, 2022. It shows total U.S. aircraft produced, measured by their weight, as well as the capital and labor used to produce aircraft, all measured relative to their 1942 levels. Now, initially, for the basically the first year, the U.S. made more airplanes by using more labor and capital to make airplanes. But after 1943, something surprising happened. The increase in capital and labor slowed, or even stopped, but we kept on increasing how many planes we made. In order to meet their ambitious targets, airplane manufacturers were forced to discover new efficiencies. And they did. Necessity was again the mother of invention. Ilzetsky actually goes much further and tracks the productivity of individual airplane manufacturers. He shows that on average, individual manufacturers became more productive when they received more plane orders 
and that this effect was greatest for the manufacturers who were already operating closest to capacity. In other words, the manufacturers who had the least ability to meet their aircraft orders by just increasing labor or capital were also the ones who most improved their productivity. Now, the above examples illustrate how sudden new necessities can indeed drive innovative effort. And I've written elsewhere about evidence that demand for new technologies even in non-crisis settings, can also spur innovative effort. For example, the private sector tends to do more R&D on treatments for diseases that become more profitable to treat. Uh, Automobile manufacturers developed more fuel-efficient vehicles in response to fuel efficiency standards and higher energy prices. But we need to be careful not to take this too far. You can't just will technologies into existence simply because they're needed by somebody. Because if so, you know, we wouldn't have waited so long for mRNA vaccines and atomic bombs. Invention has two parents. And a truer proverb might be necessity and knowledge are the parents of invention. And we can see this in some of the examples that we've actually talked about today. As discussed in a lot more detail elsewhere, and there's links in the uh, underlying newsletter, most of the new clinical trials for COVID-19 were not actually fundamentally new kinds of drugs. Instead, they were largely attempts to redeploy existing drugs to a novel use case, the the use case of COVID-19. In other words, they were attempts to take what was already known to be safe and see if it had beneficial effects on COVID-19, and most of that didn't work out. The COVID-19 vaccines that eventually did succeed rested themselves on deep foundations of fundamental research that went back decades. COVID-19 was the impetus to transform this knowledge into effective new treatments, But those efforts were well underway. They just got accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic. And the COVID-19 pandemic didn't sort of give us the knowledge that made all of this possible. Moreover, most of the radical technologies developed during World War II, such as radar and the atomic bomb, those also relied on breakthroughs in fundamental science that preceded the war. In a 2020 review of the activities of the U.S. Office in Scientific Research and Development, which oversaw these and many other technological breakthroughs of the war, Gross and Sampat, the authors, write, The time for basic research is before a crisis, and since time was of the essence, the basic knowledge at hand had to be turned to good account. Next, Ilzetsky shows much of the improvement in airplane manufacturing came from adopting techniques that had been shown to be effective in other sectors, rather than inventing sort of new processes out of whole cloth. Specifically, airplane manufacturers that faced capacity constraints were more likely to adopt production line processes, instead of making planes in a custom artisanal process, which had sort of been the standard before then, they used more outsourcing, and they used new labor management techniques to reduce attrition and uh, job quits. Lastly, with respect to the energy crisis, although the crisis initiated a new research program devoted to greater energy efficiency and alternative energy sources, those gains came slowly and steadily with a lot of the payoff arriving well after energy prices had already subsided. Renewable energy did not displace a significant share of fossil fuels for decades, actually. Crises show us that we're capable of rapidly responding to new exigencies with new solutions. But precisely because crises call for solutions urgently, those who are living in them don't really have the luxury of waiting for fundamental science to advance and then make possible perfect solutions. Because crises force us to use the knowledge at hand, it's important to enter crises with a deep well of knowledge. Thanks. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. 
You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.